Welcome to This is What Democracy Sounds Like. This program is a presentation of Metropolitan Congregations United. MCU is a community organization that brings together religious congregations, community groups, and individuals to work for a common purpose, to create a better life for all residents of the St. Louis region. Today, we are featuring part two of highlights from the 2022 Maryland Stavanger Social Justice Symposium that happened on April 5th and was recorded over Zoom. In this program, we hear from Denise Lieberman, Director and General Counsel at Missouri Voter Protection Coalition. Ms. Lieberman talked about the history of the struggle for voting rights in the United States and in Missouri, and the current threats to voting rights in bills before the state legislature. Uh, as I was thinking about today, and you've heard some really powerful words from, from people of faith, from faith leaders, about why scripture calls them to activism. I'm gonna tell you now about why as an activist, I have grown to believe that my activism is deeply rooted in faith, in that journey, and then go into the the struggles that we have ahead that I think are gonna lead us into our breakouts. And so I, I am Jewish, I come from the Jewish faith, And we have a mandate in Judaism, tikkum olam, which means repair of the world. And it's not a suggestion. It's not like an idea that you talk about. It's a mandate. It's the core central tenet of Judaism, at least in in my practice. I'm a member of Central Reform Congregation here in St. Louis. Uh, and, And I believe that my rabbis lead that example every day. But the truth of the matter is that Throughout my life, even though I was deep, always been very active in activism, uh, my parents were both local elected officials in University City, I didn't connect my, my faith with my activism. They were sort of two separate parts of my life. And I guess about a decade ago, I was in North Carolina um, with uh, Reverend now Bishop William Barber, who heads the Poor People's Campaign. At the time, he was the president of the North Carolina State Conference of the NAACP, and I had the privilege of representing him and the NAACP in a challenge to that state's uh, voter suppression law, which at the time was one of the worst in the country, uh, a case that we ultimately won um, when the court concluded that North Carolina's law targeted African-American voters with surgical precision. But the story that I want to tell you is um, outside of that case. Reverend Barber invited me to speak uh, at Repairers of the Breach in North Carolina. And this was um, a room filled with faith leaders that he had brought together to talk about the role of faith leaders in advancing justice and activism. And he wanted me to talk about voting rights. And so he's introducing me to this room, and this room was filled with ministers, preachers, pastors, rabbis, imams, and he goes and he introduces me, and he says, this is a deeply religious sister. (laughs) So I get up and I do my speech, and I talked about the law, and I talked about everything that we were talking about, and afterwards, we were talking, And I said, Reverend Barber, why did you introduce me as a deeply religious person? And he looked me straight in the eye 
It was one of those looks that sort of looks right through you, you know. And he said, yes, my sister, you are. And at first I was like, well, that's kind of presumptuous. But of course, you know, I also knew, and if any of you have, have ever heard Reverend Barber speak, you know that um, every word that comes out of his mouth is pretty intentional. And so I thought, well, he must have had a reason for saying that. And uh, I went back to, to my room that night and I did, I guess, exactly what he had hoped I would do is I reflected and I pondered on why he would say that. And here, a decade later, I'm still reflecting and pondering on why he would say that, right? And that really encapsulated this journey for me, connecting my activism to a moral imperative and, and a faith-based imperative, and why I believe so strongly that this movement, the, the success of this movement is rooted, is grounded, in our faith communities, in this moral imperative. Um, but I'm gonna tell you a little bit about why I believe that this work that we have to do, the work that you so powerfully laid out for us, um, is so deeply rooted in, in our faith. The right to vote is the foundation of all other rights. Everything else we fight for, when we fight for justice, when we fight for equal rights for all people, for we fight for the dignity of all. Voting is the way that we effectuate that work. Yes. It is how we, in, we ensure that people have access to healthcare, to Medicaid expansion, how people have access to healthy food, to safe housing, to quality education, to jobs that pay a living wage to environmental justice, to reproductive justice, to not being discriminated against based on race or religion or ethnicity or national origin or sexual orientation or gender identity. All of these things are rooted in the right to vote because the vote is how we speak publicly. It is how we exercise that voice. And it is, I suggest to you, a moral imperative that every one of us, every person in our midst, has a right to that voice. Because that vote is how we speak in a public sense. It's even more than that, right? It is how we weigh in and have a say in our future in our destinies, in our children's futures. And so if we don't have a voice in our own destinies, if we don't have a say in our own futures, we are not truly free. And until all of us are free, none of us are free. This truly is a fight to acknowledge the basic human dignity of all of us, the right of all of us to be able to have a voice in our own lives, in our own futures. Amen. That's what this fight is about, and that is why throughout this nation's history, it has been faith communities that have taken us across that Edmund Pettus Bridge, that have taken us to the state houses that have taken us to the courthouses that have fought long and hard, bloody, sadly, deadly 
battles to protect this right to vote. And that is why, as communities of faith here at Eden, you have a really special role to play in framing that message because today we are so mired in the partisan politics of this issue. And I know many of you are, are maybe here today because of that partisan politics and all the fighting and infighting that's going on on the right to vote right now. But at its core, this is about something much bigger and much deeper than partisan politics. We will push through the partisan politics if we need to, to get to where we need to be. But where we need to be, if we are trying to advance the beloved community, is the right of all people to be able to have a voice and have a say. Right? And I don't need to tell you that there are many forces aligned right now against that right, have been throughout this nation's history. And one of the things that faith communities can do and do very powerfully that politicians have trouble with is speaking truth to power. And we need some truth telling, you guys, right? I mean, and, and it's not just because of the big lie. The big lie is important here, right? That big lie that led to the violent insurrection on our nation's capital last year in an attempt to overturn valid election results that then spurred a spate, a historic spate of voter suppression bills across this country. Last year, 440 restrictive voting bills introduced in 49 out of the 50 states that disproportionately targeted communities of color, low-wage workers, young voters, seniors, voters with disabilities, people who came out in record numbers despite a pandemic that disproportionately harmed their communities and killed their families. And so those bills we saw last year and that have all carried over this year into 2022 target those very measures that made their participation possible, targeting the ability to vote by mail, targeting access to absentee voting for people who can't get to the polls on election day because of a chronic health condition, because they have to work, because they are hourly wage workers and would have to take a day off of work without pay to be able to go there, that would impose additional identification requirements on voters, that would straight out starve election authorities of funding to even administer their elections, that would impose partisanship into the elections process. And so what we've seen over this last year is not just a historic amount of, of legislation that would make voting harder, but even more measures that actually go directly to undermining the whole process itself. Yes. Delegitimizing democracy, delegitimizing this ability of everybody to have a voice. It's something that we call election subversion or election sabotage. Over 180 bills introduced last year that would have undermined the basic foundation of how voting works. There was a bill introduced right here in Missouri last year that would allow the legislature to overturn the ballot election results submitted by local election authorities. Didn't pass. But we don't have to look very far to see where that's going. Yep. Look down to Arizona and Texas and Florida. 
right? And we're fighting those fights right here in Missouri. You know, and Missouri has a very, I think, interesting place. You said St. Louis is a bellwether, and, and truly it is. Missouri, despite the fact that it's seen as a flyover state sometimes in these bigger battles, really is, I think, the heart and soul of this issue. Again, this isn't about partisanship, so don't, don't look at what the, the election results are telling you about who gets elected, Democrats or Republicans. This is really the heart and soul of this issue. I mean, think about it. Missouri was born of this battle with the two Missouri compromises. We, we entered into this union on the fight for who was allowed to be a citizen and have a say and have the privileges and immunities of citizenship. The Dred Scott trial took place right here in St. Louis on that very question with the Supreme Court concluding the judge got no, did not, was not a citizen, not entitled to the privileges and immunities of citizenship like voting. 20 years after that, Missouri was also the breeding ground for the women's suffrage movement. Did you all know that? There was a case called Minor versus Happersat, went to the Supreme Court, 1875. That case involved a woman named Virginia Minor who had the audacity after the Civil War, after we passed those post-Civil War amendments, including the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause that guaranteed the right to equality under law, she said, well, these amendments guarantee all citizens of the United States the right to vote. Women are deprived of that right. That seems to be a violation of equality under law. Virginia Minor went, marched into a polling place in the city of St. Louis to attempt to register to vote, got arrested, and that's where that case came from. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court in that case, in contrast to Dred Scott, said, yes, women may be citizens, but voting is not necessarily one of those privileges and immunities of citizenship to which they are entitled. And yet, in spite of all of that, Missouri was one of two pioneer states after the Civil War in 1875 to enshrine a fundamental, affirmative, explicit right to vote in our state constitution. Something that only a handful of states have. And that constitutional provision is the reason that today, here as we sit here in 2022, things like strict photo ID requirements to vote are unconstitutional in Missouri. It was that constitutional provision that struck down those strict photo ID requirements to vote. Teach. Missouri was one of the first states in the country to attempt to enshrine strict photo ID requirements to vote. But even before that, St. Louis is the breeding ground for the elevation of this voter fraud narrative to the national level that propelled the spate of restrictive voting laws that we have seen over the last decade and that took off like gangbusters over this last year. In the 2000 elections, I'm going back now, a couple, couple decades, 20, 20 years ago, right? Um, and those of you, most of you were, are of a certain age, remember that election. That was probably, that, that, back then we probably thought that was the craziest presidential election we'd ever see in our lifetimes, right? Little did we know. 2000 elections, city of St. Louis, 
I was one of the only attorneys stationed at St. Louis Election Board. This is before we had things like election protection. And I was there to observe the elections. No other attorneys were around. Rooms started filling with people who had been turned away at their polling places. Almost all of them black. Turns out, the city had wrongfully purged over 50,000 voters from the voter rolls, disproportionately voters of color. Uh, they had poor processes for restoring those people's rights. They were sending people back to their polling places. It was taking like three hours or more for people to get those rights restored. So I began, I didn't have a laptop with, I had a pad of paper. We were writing down, taking, taking notes, writing people's affidavits that were later used in a lawsuit that night that we kept the polls open three extra hours so that people who were in that space could get their rights restored. They were getting sent back to their original polling place, which had lines of over an hour so that those folks could, could vote. Unfortunately, that uh, order was overturned by the Court of Appeals and the Missouri Supreme Court uh, declined to take it. But that night on the news, and, and I was there downtown in St. Louis with all these folks, that line at till 11 o'clock at night it was cold, too. It was a cold November. That line wrapped around the building. These people so dedicated to being able to vote that they were willing to stand in line on downtown St. Louis, on Tucker Boulevard, in the cold till 11 o'clock at night. They were going to stay there all night if they needed to. And to send them home that night when the Supreme Court declined to step in was one of the hardest conversations I ever had to do. Now we later filed a lawsuit and we got the, the list maintenance practices changed. Uh, the whole election board got thrown out and replaced. But that night, Missouri United States Senator Kit Bond got on national television. And I'll never forget it because his face was so red. Like the, the anger and the vitriol and the hate that you could just see in his face and he's pounding on the podium and started talking about all the voter fraud that was happening in the city of St. Louis because these people were trying to vote after the close of polls. Mm -hmm. yeah. He took that narrative with him back to Washington, D.C. Wow. And along with Mitch McConnell, made voter ID requirements a deal breaker in getting the support of his caucus for legislation that came out of that election, the Help America Vote Act that then propelled what? a spate of restrictive voting laws around the country that really took off like wildfire. Not in 2020, y'all. Not even last year. When? After the election of Barack Obama in 2008. The nation's first black president propelled a spate of restrictive voting laws, including photo ID restrictions and more. But now it's on steroids. Right? Because that same big lie that Kit Bond elevated in 2000 that propelled this proliferation of voter suppression measures, that propelled it further into where we are today, rests on a lie. Rests on a lie. Rests on self interest. Rests on hatred rests on prejudice, and that is what we can combat. And it's, it's not an easy task, y'all, because we love this lie. We love the lie of our democracy in this country. 
we like to tell ourselves that we are the world's greatest democracy, and we've been telling ourselves this so long that we kind of believe it. Yeah. That's why I'm talking about being, speaking truth to power. I mean, in 1886, during Reconstruction, actually this is now we're in the post-Reconstruction era, the Supreme Court proclaims in one case that the right to vote is fundamental because it is preservative of all other rights. 1886, that's exactly when 10 of the 11 southern states were amending their constitutions to add literary, literacy tests and poll taxes to directly confront the expansion of the franchise to African Americans after the Civil War and block them from participating. That is when jurisdictions around this country, especially in the South, were resorting to abject violence towards people who attempted to register and to vote. The spate of lynchings, groups like the KKK and the Red Shirts going out and literally terrorizing people for attempting to speak. And a century later, in 1964, the Supreme Court, the year before the Voting Rights Act was passed, the year of Freedom Summer, when on the very first day of Freedom Summer, those organizers and activists that were going down to Mississippi to register people to vote were brutally murdered for doing so. The Supreme Court proclaims every voter is equal to every other voter. We love this lie. So it's up to us to speak truth to some of that. And how we do so brings us back to our own communities what we're gonna do right now in these breakouts, when we go outside after this program and walk around and talk with each other, everything that you mentioned. Because right now here in Missouri, we are facing some very critical threats to our right to, to vote. And the, the three things that we are prioritizing, we're tracking about 36, three dozen, 40 bills or so in the Missouri legislature this year that would make it harder for Missourians our most marginalized communities to vote. First, a tax on the citizen initiative process. This is something uh, where we are working closely with MCU, with other faith-based partners. There are over uh, a dozen bills that are moving in the legislature that would make it harder for citizens to be able to participate in the citizen initiative process. This is one of the most direct forms of democracy. When people who are sitting in legislatures are not responding to their communities, this is a process that allows community to go out and propose laws that they think would be good laws. And right now, it's already really hard to do that. Any of you that stood outside and collected signatures for Medicaid expansion know that. These measures would make it nearly impossible by doing two things. Uh, making it harder to get proposals on the ballot by increasing the number of signatures, in some cases by 200,000, 300,000. That's a lot. If you've ever collected signatures, you know if you get 15 in an hour, you have done a really good job. It, increasing the threshold by that much makes it nearly impossible for all but the most well-funded efforts. And the second thing these bills do is increase the threshold for passage. Right now, if citizens put a measure on the ballot and the majority of people vote for it, it passes. Fundamental fairness, it's something we learned in kindergarten. <laughs> majority wins. These measures would increase that threshold in many cases up to two thirds, 67%. Um, we couldn't get 67% of us to, to agree on what kind of coffee we would want to drink this morning, right? Um, it's a really hard threshold. 
And what it means is that measures that have the wide support of Missourians would still go unheard. Take Medicaid expansion, passed by more than 60% of Missouri's voters. That would have not been enough. Finally, photo ID requirements yet again before the Missouri legislature. A pair of bills has already passed out of the House, is in the Senate, moving forward. Y'all, it's just as unconstitutional today as it was two years ago, as it was a decade before that. Um, but yet they're still trying to limit what kinds of identification people can show at the polls disproportionately to the kind that our most vulnerable and marginalized citizens don't have. And third, limits on voting by mail. Again, efforts to make it harder for Missouri citizens to cast ballots by mail. Um, again, our most vulnerable citizens, making it harder for people who are confined due to illness or disability and the people who care for them to cast a ballot before election day. Making it harder for shift workers for low-wage workers, hourly workers who would have to take a day off without pay to be able to get to these offices. And measures that would make it harder for voters with disabilities by eliminating accessible voting machines. All these are before us, and all these are the fights that we have to carry, but it starts with that underlying power of that moral imperative. And that's why I'm wearing my John Lewis shirt Y'all might have thought that wearing a shirt that tells people to get into trouble while in a church would be a bad idea, but John Lewis liked to say, get in good trouble, get in necessary trouble. He said that the right to vote is precious, almost sacred. Yes. And that's why we're here today, and we get to talk a little bit further about some of these measures in our breakout sessions. And I'm so grateful to be in struggle and in community with all of you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to part two of highlights from the 2022 Maryland Stavanger Social Justice Symposium. If you're ready to join MCU in the work for justice in the St. Louis area, contact us at 314-367-3484 or email us at office at mcustl.com. You can learn more about and contribute to Metropolitan Congregations United on our website at mcustlewis.org. Also be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for news and events. I'm Kevin Prang, and you've been listening to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. Tune in again next time, and thank you for listening.